Mark. The beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry was like a bolt out of the blue as Jesus announced the nearness of his coming kingdom. It was at hand. And he began to demonstrate that with his powerful preaching and with the healings of sick people of all sorts and even the very expulsion casting out of demons from those that were possessed by them. Jesus' popularity was great. Much greater than even John the baptizer who had gone before him. I have a slide up here I want to point out to you and I'll make sure and point this back this way. Uh, I think we've got the slide there. Uh, there we go. Oh, nope. There it is. Alright. Here's the Galilee. Mark told us last week that Jesus People were coming to him from the Galilee, this region here. There's the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee. But they were not only coming from here, they were coming from Jerusalem, down here all the way, way south to Judea, and even all the way down to Eudemia, almost on the border of Egypt. Go much further this way and you're in Egypt. And then all the way across the Jordan, the Transjordan on the other side, Perea and this area and the Decapolis. And then all the way up north to the cities of Sire and Titan. Jesus was people, pulling people out of the woodwork. They were coming from everywhere to hear this amazing carpenter son from Galilee. Now, we pick up our reading of the scripture at verse 30. Uh, excuse me, chapter 3 of Mark's gospel. At verse 20, where we left off last week, and we'll be reading through verse 35. And again, I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Hear it with careful appreciation. Mark three twenty. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed... He may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven of the children of men, but whatever, but whatever blasphemies, blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent to him and called him 
And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. May God add the blessing to the reading of his holy word. Let's pray. Father, please now, illumine us, help us to understand what your scriptures are teaching us. Give us faith, give us understanding, and may it yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have come to believe that in order to understand this sacred book better, to get a better grasp of what it's telling us, the truth that it's communicating to us, that is so important to our lives and to the glory of God and to our own edification and to our mission here on this earth. I have become convinced that in order to understand the Bible, especially narratives, historical narratives that are telling us a story, that we need to think more in chunks instead of individual verses. We need to take larger sections, not smaller, if we want to understand the scriptures better. We need to be looking for paragraphs and for complete thoughts, even if they're rather long, in order to understand our Bibles better. Mark employs in his gospel, his book here, some interesting literary styles. And Mark was not particularly that concerned at all about following a strict chronology. Everything had to be in the right order at the right time. No, he grouped things more in order to get across his point. He frequently would juxtapose things in order to draw a contrast in order that we might see the real point he's trying to make. And we're going to see that today. And then perhaps one of Mark's most interesting devices that he uses to explain Jesus' ministry to us is what is known as the Markan sandwich. The Markan sandwich. It's got bread, it's got a, a, a meaty middle, and then it's got more bread. And that basically is the outline of what Mark gives us here in the passage that we just read. Mark often starts with the story, and then midstream he switches to another story, and then he returns to finish the story he was working on in the first place. Thus, the Markan sandwich. So, with that in mind, how does today's message break down? How does today's Mark and Sandwich? By the way, there are many others. There are a number of other of these. One example is in Mark 6. We'll get there eventually, 6b through 44. It starts with one thing, breaks into something else, and then there comes the bread on the bottom. Today's passage is going to break it down this way. We're going to be looking at the concern. 
We're going to be looking at the criticism, and we're going to be looking at the comparison. The concern, the criticism, and the comparison. Hopefully you'll see why I say that as we go along. Let's dig in, first of all, and consider the concern. That's basically in verses 20 through 22 of the scripture that I just read. Now, when Jesus and his new apostles got back from the mount, their mountaintop experience, the crowds had grown even larger, even more unwieldy, more and more pressing in. So much so, things were getting out of hand. You couldn't even, they, Jesus couldn't even find time to eat. And this was probably, obviously, a concern to him and to, uh, to his followers and, and to his family who happened to be there. They were following Jesus too. Many of his family were following him. And Jesus went to whatever house that he was staying at that he sort of called his home away from home. And his family was getting very concerned for him. They were very concerned for him and likely for themselves too. You know why? Because Jesus had gone from doing wonderful miracles and all this cool stuff, he had now started picking a fight with the Pharisees of all people, the holy men of that day. And this was rocking the boat. It was going to get Jesus in trouble. And they were afraid for him. But they were also probably afraid for themselves. They thought, we may get caught up in this thing. So we, we, we got to get, we gotta get Jesus to keep the lid on this thing. Tamp it down. So, like a good family, they were there to help. Probably as they saw it. Jesus' family were concerned. So, they decided to have a little intervention for Jesus. You know what an intervention is? It's when you get all the family around so the guy has no place to go or the girl has no place to go. They have to listen to what's being said. So they decide to call for a little intervention. To literally, the NIV says, to take charge of him. They were going to manage him, whether he wanted it or liked it or not. Because they believed that their family member was a little bit loco in the cabeza. That he, he was just a few bricks short of a full load. Why would he take on? Why would he jeopardize everything? By having these fights with the Pharisees. By calling them and not showing the respect that they thought they deserved. This was shocking. We know from John 7, Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. But how could his own mother... The one who some would call the mother of God. How in the world could she be doing this? This is Blessed Mary. Well, let me tell you something else. Do you remember John the baptizer? Remember what he said about Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God. But the day came in which John sitting in the jail cell, knowing that his life was about to come to an end. And he had one of his disciples go and, and said, look, i got to find out. Is Jesus, is he really the real deal? Is he the one we've been waiting for or not? John, who had said this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, he was having doubts. Mary, the brothers, John, were just like you and me. 
We don't always have perfect faith. But at this point, it was clearly causing a distraction. Of all the gospel writers, only Mark includes the fact that Jesus' family thought he was not right in the head. Only Mark tells us that. I love how Michael Card put it in his song, God's Own Fool. Listen. Seems I've imagined him, talking about Jesus, all of my life is the wisest of all mankind. But if God's holy wisdom is foolishness to men, he must have seemed out of his mind. For even his family said he was mad, and the priests said a demon's to blame. But God in the form of this angry young man could not have seemed perfectly sane. That's what was going on. Card captured it. You know, have, how many of you read, read your Bibles and never had realized that? But they're basically calling Jesus a madman. Now they're trying to help him. They love him. They're trying to help him, but, but they think he's lost it. You see, they didn't get what Jesus was doing and they didn't understand why. If they had, they would not have responded that way. But you know what this says? This is really good news right here. You know what this says about this book? Once again, how worthy of trust it is. Because... It is only a book like the Bible that records things like this. That shows human weakness. And even the heroes are exposed. Because there is only one, really. And he's talked about all through this book. But everybody else, even the best, fail and falter. And yet, this book's not afraid to say, even the family of Jesus... One of which would be a leader in the church eventually when he came to faith in Christ. And by the way, they all, these, his brothers and Mary, they did eventually come to believe in him and trust him. But at this point in time, Mark is not afraid to record that they think Jesus is out of his mind. Why? That's what an authentic book does. That's why... The books, the resurrection accounts, the first people that see are what? Women. And that time and that, that era, there was nothing that would have been considered trustworthy about their testimony. And yet the gospel writers put women all over it as the first ones seeing Jesus. Well, that wouldn't even hold up in court. They weren't worried about that. It just speaks to the authority and to the authenticity and the accuracy of this book. It doesn't hide and clean everything up. That's what you do with a conspiracy. You clean up all the loose ends. You get rid of things that are not fitting the narrative. But how we see, once again, the authority the authenticity and the truthfulness of Scripture. Unafraid. Secondly, criticism. That's in verses 23 through 30. Jesus' own people considered him a bit off his rocker. Well, the Pharisees had an alternative explanation. They had come up with a hypothesis of their own. 
Notice again verse 22. Mark 3, verse 22. And the scribes came down from Jerusalem and were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So basically, the scribes theorized that Jesus was performing his miracles, including exorcisms, with the help of Beelzebul. Now here's the magic question. Who is that? Who's the, who is Beelzebul? Well, some of the translations, older translations, and I believe not quite as accurate translations, use the word Beelzebub. And that translates to Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dunghill. That's not the word here. It's Beelzebul. Basically connected with Baal. And it is the prince of darkness that is being referred to here. It is Satan himself. He's the prince of all the demons. And you know what? The context bears that out. It's exactly what they say. He's not some semi-small uh, demigod like Beelzebub. It's, this, is, this is the kingpin. This is the big fish. And yet they say he's doing it, casting out demons by the prince of demons. Their criticism was essentially that Jesus was in league with the devil. Now, Mark has already showed us, showed us that's not true. He showed us that this, Jesus' power didn't come from demons. It came from the anointing of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' baptism. That's attested to. Mark's already pointed that out. He was endowed with ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that makes what they're saying so dangerous spiritually. But the Pharisees, even though that was true, the Pharisees found an explanation that fit their narrative and they weren't at all concerned about whether or not, the, and they weren't about to let facts stand in their way. Sounds like a bunch of modern politicians, doesn't it? Oh, we're going to make sure it fits the narrative. Well, it doesn't matter if we, yeah, we know it's not true, but we're going to make it fit. We're going to shoehorn it in there. When Jesus found out what they were saying, once again, he doesn't, he doesn't hesitate. Goes right up and gets into it with them. He meets them head on in verses 23 through 26. You heard me read that. Jesus is basically saying, really? How in the world can that... Guys, you're the ones with... Uh, some blue screws. You've lost all sense of logic. You don't have the. You don't understand the basic laws of non-contradiction. This is illogical, irrational. The things you're saying. His words were pithy and they were powerful. He was essentially saying, "How is it possible for Satan to destroy himself? Can the one who we say in a hymn?" is referred to as armed with cruel hate. That's how Luther describes it. How can the one who's armed with cruel hate be the administrator of such mercy, delivering people from bondage, demonic bondage, into wholeness and health again? There's nothing about that that connects and computes. Now, 
Here's a very interesting thing. Don't have much time to point it out, but I'll say this. A lot of talk about it. I'm not sure that, and I would say this, if you're wondering about it, maybe have you committed the unforgivable sin? You probably have not. But what is the unforgivable sin? Well, I think context, once again, helps us here. This is not something we got to go all over the, from Dan to Beersheba trying to find. It's, context is right there. What is it? The context suggests that the Pharisees were either on the cusp or they'd already crossed over. Because they were not only demonizing Jesus, saying that Jesus, but they were basically bringing the Holy Spirit's reputation and what he had done and basically calling it a ball-faced lie. They were demonizing Jesus and the Holy Spirit and they were going all in on the lie. Why is it so horrible? Because they knew it was a lie. They knew it wasn't true. They knew he was not doing this by the power of demons. But they were going to say it anyway. And they were going to lie and try to convince as many as they could. So, what about the comparison? That's in verses 31 through 35. We do know or we don't know whether or not Jesus' mother and brothers heard what Jesus said to the Pharisees when he basically kind of took them to the woodshed, logically speaking. Did Jesus, what he said, did it, if they did hear, did it confirm their fears and make them all the more afraid? Possibly. But whatever the case, they had heard enough and they needed to put him into protective custody. Now they were going to basically, uh, you know, uh, do a baker, they were going to baker act him. That's what they were about to do to, the, to their son or to their brother. They're going to Baker act him. And so they needed to talk with him. So they sent a message that says, hey, uh, tell, tell, tell our son, tell Jesus, to, uh, we need to have a word with him. Of course, Jesus knows what they're thinking. He already understands what they're trying to do. And so he decides to make a little lesson for everybody else. So the family sends the message to Jesus. And Jesus starts asking, who is my family? Who's my mother? Who's my brothers? Jesus knew what their concerns were and what they did not understand about kingdom relationships. About kingdom relationships. See, what have you always heard all your life? And you know it to be true. Blood is what? Thicker than water. Always. Really? Not according to Jesus, it's not. Jesus says, it's the ones doing my father's will. Those are my brothers. Those are my sisters. That's my mother. It's my dad. That's my truest family. Now, was Jesus dissing his own family? No. He was comparing things and saying, by comparison. It almost looks like hate for your family. He said that elsewhere, remember, in the Gospels? He wasn't saying he did hate. You ha- he was saying, by comparison, the gap is so big. Jesus was redefining family as those who do his Father's will. By the way, how did you do the, the uh, Lord, um, Passover back then? By family? Why did Jesus celebrate the Passover with his family? He celebrated it with the disciples, and that was intentional. He was saying, this is my family. 
Those who follow me, they are my family. Blood is what it is, but there is something stronger. There is stronger stuff that comes by the Spirit of God. The point was, when it comes to physical and spiritual family, there is no comparison. And I've watched people basically jeopardize and damage themselves spiritually because they refuse to stand up and take the stand sometimes against a family member that was doing ungodly things. And I have known firsthand, literally, a house burned down and took an elder down with it because he wouldn't take the stand that he needed to have taken to deliver the bondage of one of his sons. You see, my friends, Mark has a purpose in the way he put this together. Mark led his readers to consider Jesus' identity by using his sandwich technique. He put that together, that package of family, and then this betray the blasphemy issue, and then back by the Pharisees, and then back to family again. What was he trying to accomplish? He does it to get us to consider that both Jesus' family, listen carefully, and the Pharisees were in cahoots. Well, not really. They didn't plan it out. But guess what? They were aligned in the same path that would lead to the same end. And they didn't know it. Mark did though. Mark understood the big picture through Peter. He had been told what it was ultimately all about. He's writing and reflecting back on this. But he knew that the way this went down. He knew that Jesus' family and the Pharisees have something in common. You know what it was? They were both trying to get Jesus to abort the mission that he came to do. And what did you hear me say a few weeks ago? I said that the very purpose of the prince of darkness and his demons, why they may have been shouting at it, they were trying to somehow throw Jesus off the timetable that the Father had given him. They were trying to get him to get distracted or somehow maybe we can catch him early so that he can't fulfill all righteousness and can't go and die an atoning death. If we can throw him off a cliff, we can short circuit the whole plan of God. They tried and they tried and they tried, but they couldn't do it. And Mark is telling us, one of these groups is evil. The other group's just trying to help Jesus and concerned about him. But they both would have had the same effect had they succeeded in getting him off his target. God was not going to let that happen. Jesus was not going to let that happen. And so he did what he did and said what he said. So, who is Jesus really? Brought up that question last week. This is the second part. Who is this guy? Well, I want you to listen once again to Michael Card and the way he finishes that song, God's Own Fool.
So come. Lose your life for a carpenter's son. In other words, die to yourself. Follow him. Lose your life for a carpenter's son. For a madman who died for a dream. And you'll have the faith his first followers had. And you'll feel the weight of the beam. So surrender the hunger to say you must know. Have the courage to say, I believe. For the power of paradox opens your eyes, but blinds those who say they can see. So, we follow God's own fool. For only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable. Come, be a fool as well. Come, be a fool as well. The question is, whose fool are you? Who's fool am I? Let us pray. Father, we thank you, oh God, Lord, that nothing you were not going to allow in your plan. Your son was not going to turn away from the awful faith that was before him. But he had to fulfill all righteousness. He came to announce and proclaim the truth. He came to start the new beginning of all things that one day he will finish father and will surrender unto you Lord we thank you that we will be there we who believe who have our faith in him and even if though our faith falters as we saw even if our doubts are there we thank you O oh God Lord that there is no doubt well what Jesus accomplished and Father, we would follow Him, even if it looks foolish to men. Lord, help us not to be wise in our own eyes, but follow the one who truly was, though designated a fool, was the wisest of all. And Lord, was the willingest of all to come to take away our sins and bring us home to You, Father. We thank You for Him and for His love. In Jesus' name, amen.